All right, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> a few years ago, when we lived in Montgomery, I was leaning back in a dentist chair. My mouth was wide open. The technician had several instruments in it. And she looks me right in the eye and she says, so what's going to happen to me after I die? And I waited a few moments until she took the tools out of my mouth. I closed my mouth. I swallowed. And I looked at her and I said, it all depends on how badly you hurt me. I know this. They probably won't need any dental technicians in heaven, although they may need some in hell. I'm not sure how bad that's going to be. Many people are interested in the question, so what happens after I die? And so today and tomorrow, or today and next Sunday, we're going to talk about two eternal realities. I want to begin with this passage in 2 Corinthians 4 from the contemporary English version. It says, our bodies are gradually dying. Some of us would argue a little faster than gradually. Things that are seen don't last forever, but things that are not seen are eternal. That's why we keep our minds on the things that cannot be seen. The point that Paul is making is this. Eternal realities are more important than physical realities, and that's the reason why we need to focus on the things that are going to last forever. In 1 Corinthians 13.12, it says, Right now, we are looking in a mirror that gives only a dim reflection of reality. But one day, we shall see reality face to face. So I want to begin with this question, what are the realities of life? Before we can talk about heaven and hell, it is important for us to remind ourselves of the basic realities of life. Reality number one is this. You are made in God's image. And so because of that, God wants to love you and He wants you to love Him back. In Jeremiah 31.3, He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, I have drawn you with loving kindness. So the first reality of life is this. You are made in God's image. Reality number two. Everything you see is temporary. Your body, your cars, your house, anything that is material is fading away. And that's the reason why we have to spend so much money on maintenance. Maintaining our bodies, maintaining our cars, maintaining our house. Anything that is physical is in the process of wearing down and wearing out. Reality number three. <clears throat> Everything you don't see is eternal. Angels. God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, heaven, hell. All the things we don't see are going to last forever. 
The Bible says that this life is about preparing for the next life. That life on earth is simply the warm-up lap around the track before the real race begins. Reality number four. God has prepared two eternal places, heaven and hell. We believe that they are real, literal, spiritual places. We do not believe in soul sleep. We don't believe that it's just some state of being. We don't believe that you enter into some disembodied condition. We believe heaven and hell are real. Look at this passage in John 14. This is a few hours before the cross. Jesus is speaking to His disciples. In My Father's house are many rooms or many mansions. I am going there to prepare a place for you. So heaven is not an accident. It is a prepared place. But hell is also real. In Matthew 25, Jesus said this, Then He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, if you look at the last part of that passage, it says, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Did you know that hell was not created for people? It was created for the devil and his angels. Heaven was created for people. However, if you choose to rebel like the devil did, then you go to the place prepared for the devil and his angels. So God has prepared two real eternal places, heaven and hell. Reality number five. You choose where you will spend eternity. It is your choice. It is the same kind of choice that God gave His people in the Old Testament when He said this to them in Deuteronomy 30. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Now choose life. So where you spend eternity is your personal decision. I want to share a story, and then when I'm through with it, I'm going to ask you three questions about it. Suppose you were a drug addict living in a gutter in your own vomit. Your life has completely fallen apart because you are hopelessly addicted to drugs. And then suppose one day I walk by and I see you and I feel grace and pity and love towards you. And I say to you, you don't deserve what I am about to do, but I'm going to help you out. Here is what I am going to do for you. I am going to take you to my house And there you can take a bath and get all cleaned up. 
and then I'm going to feed you just a, a meal, just a great meal. You could be, be full. You're going to feel good. And then I'm going to give you a brand new set of clothing. Maybe, Will, we could give them some Carhartts. Carhartt shirt, pants, that's the best I have. I'm going to give you a brand new set of clothes. But that's not all. I'm going to let you live in my house permanently. But that's not all. I am going to legally adopt you. And you can take on the Stuart name. And all of the resources that I have will be available to you. And then I am going to pay off your drug debt. And then I'm going to get the visa and the MasterCard in your name and you can go out and charge what you need. And you ask me, why? And I say, because I love you. That's why. You don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. I've just decided that I'm going to show you my grace. However, there is a condition. You have to follow one rule to stay at my house. You must always follow this rule. No illegal drugs at any time inside my house. Now I want to ask you three questions. And you can answer them yes or no. Question number one. Is it reasonable for me to expect you to live by my rules since it is my house and you are using my resources? Answer it yes or no. Question number two. If you decide to turn me down, would that be my fault? Yes or no? Question number three. If you decide to turn me down, could you blame me for being unloving? Now suppose you owned a beach house. And you called me up one day and said, Bruce, we would love for you and Tammy to come and stay in our beach house for two weeks Free of charge. We have food in the refrigerator that you can eat. We have Cokes that you can drink, and I will break your budget on the Cokes. I promise. You'll go to the poorhouse on Diet Cokes. We have a boat that, that you can use, and it is, it's yours and Tammy's. However, we have one rule that must always be followed in the house. No jumping on the beds. And so I discuss it with Tammy. And I call you back and I say, we really appreciate the offer, but we're going to have to turn you down because with Tammy and I, that's our biggest thing, jumping on beds. I mean, whenever we're staying at somebody's house, the first thing we do is we get and we jump up and down on the mattress. So we're going to have to respectfully turn you down. Can we accuse you of being mean and uncaring and unloving and unconsiderate? Yes or no? Now let's apply this logic to heaven. Jesus has a house. 
house. We just read it, right? Has a house, has a bunch of rooms in it. Does he have the right to set rules for his house? If you decide to turn him down and not go by his rules, does that make him unloving and uncaring and unconsiderate? Not at all. It just makes you dumb. So reality number five, you choose where you will spend eternity. And if you decide to, well, we can't follow the house rules, we're very, very sorry, but those are the rules. Reality number six, there is no second chance after you die. God gives you a lifetime to decide what door you're going to walk through. But there is no halfway house between heaven. There is no limbo. There is no purgatory. Over the last 50, 75 years, the Catholic Church has moved away from teaching about purgatory. It was a teaching that was developed during the Middle Ages to raise money to build many of the beautiful cathedrals that you see scattered around in different parts in Europe. You pay us a certain amount of money, we can, we can spring your friends out of purgatory. You do not have to be a Bible scholar <clears throat> in order to go to heaven. Consider the thief on the cross. So here is a guy, I suppose he was a criminal much of his life. He's hanging on a cross next to Jesus. He makes a deathbed confession. He says, Lord, will you remember me when you come into paradise? That's all the guy knew about salvation was Jesus could save him. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. He did not say, today you'll be with me in limbo, or today you will be with me in purgatory, but you will be with me in paradise. And so what does it take to get to heaven? You have to say yes to Jesus, and you have to be willing to follow His house rules. So those are six realities of life that we need to be reminded of before we talk about heaven and hell. Now, three questions. Why does hell exist? What is hell like? And number three, how do I avoid it? Excuse me. First, why does hell exist? Two fundamental reasons. Number one is because sin and evil exist. Hell exists because sin and evil exist. Now there are some people who deny the existence of real objective evil. And, you know, they think everybody is basically good. All I can say is have you read the newspaper lately? Have you watched TV lately? 
The world is filled with broken relationships, broken promises, rape, abuse, murder, child molestation, terrorism, and people who strap bombs to themselves and go into the middle of a marketplace and blow themselves up. And it amazes me that has not yet happened in a crowded American mall or restaurant. In Ephesians 2.3, it says this, All of us once lived among these people and followed the desires of our corrupt nature. Would you circle corrupt nature? The Bible says that it is not my nature to think of you. It is my nature to be selfish, to think only of myself. And so it is good for us to remind ourselves that this is not Little House on the Prairie in Walnut Grove, Minnesota in the 1880s. People are not basically good. People are basically evil. And what was true in Noah's day is still true at least in principle today. It says... Now the Lord observed the extent of people's wickedness, and He saw that all of their thoughts were consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry He ever made them, and watch this, this is in the New Living Translation. It says, it broke His heart. So where is God when people are raped, murdered, and blown up? He is weeping and grieving. It breaks His heart. Well, if it breaks His heart, then why doesn't He do something about it? Why doesn't He stop all of this crazy madness and evil in the world? The answer is, in order for Him to do it, He would have to take away everybody's free will. Basically, he would have to remove every human being from the surface of the earth. So here is the key point. Our greatest gift, which is the exercise of free will, is also our worst curse. So then, why does he give us free will? He wants us to choose to love him. Because if it is forced, then it is not real. So here's another key point. Love is only love if you can choose not to love. Let me say that again. Love is only love if you can choose not to love. And so the only way that we can truly love God is for us to choose to love Him. And that's going to leave open the possibility that we're going to do the wrong thing and choose not to love Him. And so if you choose to do the right thing and obey God, then you do not want to see in heaven people who have chose to do the wrong thing. I mean, if you get to heaven and Hitler is there and Joseph Stalin is there, then it's really not going to be heaven. Now, Psalm 15 says this, 
Lord, who may enter Your holy tent? Who may live on Your holy mountain? Only those who are innocent and who do what is right. Such people speak the truth from their hearts. Now, holy tent is simply a a metaphor meaning God's presence. Or if you want to say heaven, you could say heaven. What is What are the conditions for entering into God's presence, into His holy tent? You must be innocent and you must do what is right. Now, there's a little bit of a problem with that. No one is totally innocent and no one always does what is totally right. And so God has made a plan available to you where you can go to heaven based on what Jesus has done for you on the cross. But you have to choose His plan. And if you don't choose Jesus' plan, then you cannot enter Jesus' house. So, hell exists because sin and evil exist and God is going to punish it one day. And then number two, second reason hell exists is because God is holy and just. He's holy, which means He is He's separated from all others. He is majestic. He's glorious. He's perfect. He's sinless. And He is just. That means He believes in justice. And one day, God is going to completely balance the books and bring total justice into the world. Here's a question. Rhetorical question. You know the answer. Is it fair that you were born in America and that someone else was born in Dayfur in the Sudan where warlords get away with murder and People who are trying to do the right thing starve to death. Have you noticed how life is so completely unfair? Solomon complained about it for about 12 chapters in a book called Ecclesiastes. This is what he said in chapter 8. He said, I saw the wicked buried. Those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this, this too is meaningless. Solomon said, I was down there at the cemetery and I saw them burying people and I knew they were wicked people. And what really bothered me is these were the very people that when they were alive, they were praised as to how great they were in the cities where they lived. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. You know the reason why people commit crimes so readily? It's because crime is not punished quickly enough. So what would it be like if if Stalin and Hitler showed up in heaven? Or Bin Laden who'd train people to strap bombs onto themselves and blow themselves up. What would heaven be like if those people were there? It wouldn't be heaven. So God is going to one day settle the score totally and completely. So why does hell exist? It exists because sin and evil exist. 
It exists because God is holy and just and His justice demands punishment for sins unforgiven. Next question. What is hell like? Come to our services at 6 p.m. and find out. No, that's just no. That was in a church bulletin one time. They had up there, it said, uh, what is hell like? Come hear our choir in the evening service, you know. I guess they actually kind of had the minister's topic, uh, subject mixed up with what the choir was going to be, be doing, you know. So what is hell like? I thought this was going to be relatively simple. What is hell like? Get a few scriptures, get three, four points, and, and go for it. It's actually very difficult to explain because we do not have any human experience that we can compare it to. It's kind of like trying to explain the internet to an ant. You know? How would you go about doing that? So what is hell really like? Now every once in a while I'll watch some of these guys on TV, some of these TV ministers. I like several of them and I, and I follow a few of them. But some of them I think are, uh, not, uh, I think they're a little bit, a little bit off. But every once in a while there'll be some guy up there and, and, and man, he's really talking about hell and he's carrying, he's dragging his Bible like this, you know. And I didn't bring my handkerchief. And he's just, yeah, and he's sweating up a storm and he's yelling at the audience and everything. And just watching him, I almost kind of get the feeling that he wants people to go there. You know? I just kind of get that feeling. I mean, it's almost like he's almost proud to, to say these things. God certainly does not want anyone to be lost eternally. Number one, hell is separation from God's presence. It's separation from God's presence. This is 2 Thessalonians 1.8. Did you get the separation from God's presence? I don't know if you had time to write that down or not. This is 2 Thessalonians 1. It says, He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. People really don't realize how bad separation from God is because we always have His presence here on earth. Now let me explain that. Everybody on earth every day sees evidence of God's presence regardless of whether they are a Christian or not. The water that we breathe, the water that we drink is a gift from God. The air that we breathe is a gift from God. The food that we eat is a gift from God. The clothes that we wear is a gift from God. Our health is a gift from God. So we do not know what it is like to live without God's presence and grace. Now one big myth about heaven is that it's going to be one giant party for people who like to party. And maybe you've seen like a cartoon or something and everybody's kind of standing around with a champagne glass with a little olive in it and one of those little sticks. What are you supposed to do with those sticks? Some of you are champagne drinkers. You stir it around in there a a little bit. Listen. Yeah. No one 
will see anybody else in hell because hell is total separation from God and people. And that's the reason why even today, in most situations, solitary confinement is considered the worst possible human punishment to be separated from other people. Number two, hell is a place of torment. Hell is a place of torment. In Matthew 8.12, it said, but those people who should be in the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where people will cry and grind their teeth with pain. Most of us have an image of hell as being a place of fire and torment. We all know how destructive fire can be in the physical world to a house, to a forest of trees, to a human body. And you may remember what a year or so ago out in California, those those fires, they just burn 1,400, 1,500 degrees, just consumes everything in its path. People, houses, cars, animals. What fire is capable of doing in the physical world, it can also do in the spiritual world to our souls. And three, there are no friends in hell. There are no friends in hell. You are totally alone. No friends in hell. I was watching a movie, and I don't remember the name of it, but it had to do, there were these astronauts. And they were like, I think they were up in a spaceship or something. And they were angry at each other over some girl down on Earth. So I guess, you know, you can even be jealous in space, apparently. Well, something went wrong with the spaceship. So one of them was going to have to go out and spacewalk and take some tools and, you know, get a crescent wrench or something and fix some of the bolts on the side of the ship. And so this one guy, he's, he's, he's out here, uh, spacewalking and he, and he's on the side of the uh, spaceship and he's doing some kind of work. And that other guy, the other astronaut inside who doesn't like him because of that girl back down on earth, he takes like these uh, clippers and he, he clips the guy's cord that he's attached to. And, and you see this guy floating out into the darkness of eternity all by himself. That's my image of hell. You've been cut loose and you're just floating out alone to the darkness of eternity. Another myth about hell. Satan is in charge. That is not true. We read in Matthew 25 that God has prepared hell for the devil and his angels. Satan is not in charge of hell. God is in charge of hell. And Satan and all of his fellows and companions are going to be punished there too. Number four. There is no light or love in hell. There is no light or love in hell. The Bible says God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. So the Bible says there is absolutely nothing good in hell. 
And so you do not want to choose hell. Whatever Jesus' house rules are, those are the rules that you need to follow so you can not only enter His house, but you can stay there. So I hope after today, you never say to a person, never again say, go to hell. No matter how badly they have hurt you, we don't want anyone to be lost eternally in hell. So the last question, and the most important one, is how do I avoid it? Only a fool would go all through life completely unprepared for what we all know is inevitable. According to a recent statistic that I read, the human mortality rate is still 100%. None of us knows when we're going to just drop dead. It could be right after service. It could be a week from now, maybe 50, 60 years from now. When we were living in Montgomery, I was at a, a church there. And while I was speaking, one of the brothers fell out of the pew into the aisle, had a heart attack right there. Well, fortunately, he survived and he had a real sense of humor. And and after he got well, he told everybody that my sermon contributed to his heart attack. So I don't I haven't preached that sermon here. I'm, I'm sparing you. I don't want any of you falling out or anything like that. Jesus says, I want you to trust me and I want you to know for certain that you have eternal life. So how do I settle the spiritual issues in my life? Your ticket to heaven is Jesus. This is 1 John 5. It says He has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. So whoever has God's Son has life. Whoever does not have His Son does not have life. This is the reason why Christmas and Easter are so important. If Jesus had not come into the world at Christmas, and if He had not died on the cross and come back to life on Easter, then you and I would have absolutely no hope at all. But the good news is, Jesus lives. And so this is why we say the ultimate answer to your problems is Jesus Christ and the cross. This is Colossians 1.21 in the New Century. At one time, you were separated from God. You were His enemies in your minds. And the evil things you did were against God. But now God has made you His friends again. <clears throat> he did this through Christ's death in the body so that He might bring you into God's presence as people who are holy with no wrong and with nothing of which God can judge you guilty. God says, I am going to wipe your slate clean. And that's why I call Colossians the Etch-A-Sketch verse of the Bible. <clears throat> if you were born in the late 40s, the 1950s, 
And into the early 60s, if your parents were anything decent, you had an Etch-A-Sketch. Not any Etch-A-Sketch. It had to be Ohio art. Etch-A-Sketch. only true Etch-A-Sketch. How many of you had an Etch-A-Sketch? Wow. How many of you were born after 1965 and had an Etch-A-Sketch? Wow, so they may still be around. Okay, so you have these dials. It's a lot of fun. You, you turn the dials, and there's a little, I guess, a needle that comes across the screen there, and you can't see it where you're sitting, but you can draw lines. And if you're really good, you can do, like, pictures and, and things like that. You can do, like, a clown or something. And then, you, then you know, after you do it for a while, you get a little tired, and you know what you do? That's the fun part. Brand new. Get to start over. Isn't that great? You know what you and I have done? We've, we've been We've been moving in our lives. A lot of the things we do, we've been moving the wrong dial. We've been doing the wrong stuff. You know what I mean? And you know what? Jesus says, I'm just going to take it. I'm going to take it and shake it. I'm going to take you and shake you. And I'm going to give you a brand new slate. And you get to start all over again. That's what he wants to do with your life. So you have to accept the good news. Second thing is be baptized. Be baptized. Look at this passage in Romans 6.4. It says, Therefore we are buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. I want to encourage you to make a public commitment to Jesus. And that's what baptism is. It is a public announcement. Hear ye! Hear ye! See what has taken place on the inside of me. Suppose you said to your fiancé, Oh, baby, I love you. You are just, whew, I cannot wait until our wedding. I can't wait to be married to you. This is just so exciting. But let's not tell anybody ever that we got married. You know what she would do to you? She would grab you by the collar and say, what's the matter with you, buster? Are you ashamed of me? That's what would happen. So if you're engaged, don't try it. Don't mess. Don't mess with them. I'm telling you right now. Are you afraid of getting wet for Jesus? Jesus said, that if you are ashamed of me before men, then I am going to be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. And baptism, among other things, says you are not ashamed of Jesus Christ. One day, you're going to stand before the Lord and He's going to ask you, now tell me exactly what did you do with your life? Well, I joined the country club. He's going to say, yeah, I joined the PTA. He's going to say, yeah, I joined the sewing club. Yeah, I was a member of Save the Manatees. Yeah, I was the chief organizational officer of the Mobile Historic Preservation Society. Yeah. 
but were you a part of my church? All those other things are fine. He wants to know, were you a part of my church? I want to encourage you to follow the house rules. They're not that complicated. They're actually very simple. Do what you know is the right thing to do. The Bible says if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, then as far as God is concerned, it's a sin on your part. James 4.4, 4, you have violated your own conscience and your, your knowledge of what you need to do. Will is going to lead us in an invitation hymn. If you have a need, we want to encourage you to come up and let us know. If you want to talk afterwards in a more private setting, we can do that. Jesus wants your salvation to be certain. If you have a need, please let us know while we stand and sing.